go. Welcome, everybody, to the Chinchilla Pickin' Podcast. It is June the 4th, 2023, at 6.03 p.m. My, uh, as always, we hope to be entertaining, educational, and uplifting, because we want everyone to make money. My name is David Underwood, and yes, I know I posted on Instagram that Brandon was hurt and seeking treatment. He is here with me. Uh, I was looking for a co-host, Brandon, while you were, got, while you were out. I did not find a co-host, so I'm happy you made it back. Yeah, same same Nick injury that I talked about the last podcast, and it just got worse. It got to the point where at one point I couldn't even get myself out of bed. Um, it's a it's a pinched nerve in, in the top part of my spine on my neck, and the pain is just to the right of my spine, and then it kind of goes all the way down my arm, triggers uh, or uh, and and kind of concentrates in my shoulder, and uh, makes my hand numb. So it's no, it's not a fun thing <laughs> at all. Pinch nerves are terrible, um, but uh, you know they they put me on a lot of medication, um, benzos, uh, naproxen, uh, and then something else that I had to take six times a day. Uh, so I'm getting there. I'm getting better. Uh, just need to stay better. Well, there you go, man. Uh, I didn't know you were going to go into all your details there, but. Thanks for sharing. Uh, yeah, we uh, hope it gets better. And uh, that way we could be more consistent with our getting these podcasts out to people because people want to know what's going on in the markets. A lot's happened the past week. There's been a lot of uh, big headlines. Um, I, I, first off, I want to I want to eat crow on the video. But not eat crow because I said that it gapped up so much I wouldn't buy it. It moved up too high and I would get out at that time. And it was at I believe. Hold on. I'm pulling it up right now. It was at uh, 380 at that time, 385, 380. It went all the way up to above 400. It's back down around 392. Um, I still think it's overbought. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I was wrong. It did go up a little bit more after I said that. But I mean, I, I still I still hold what to what I say that it's it's overbought and needs to retract some more on that. So that's my one. I need to uh, say I I got wrong, but I still believe I'm right long term. Yeah. So, <laughs> if you, you will, know, sometimes it happens, you know, you, you identified, I think the uh, upside risk is being narrow um, pretty well on it. And and just every once in a while, people go a little bit too bullish. Look, the Nasdaq's on its sixth straight week of games gains. That's the first time this has happened since uh, COVID. Um, and I really think we're just I think this is this Goldilocks moment where people are starting to turn and starting to think this time it's different. And and yeah. you get that every every time and every time it's wrong. So, yeah, and we'll get into that later on the show about uh, the Goldilocks moment and the jobs report and what that has to do, how that affects the outlook going forward. But um, let's get into the meat here. Rules, rules, rules. Uh, Brandon and I get together five to ten minutes before the show, and we tell each other what we're going to talk about. We you you save and hear the live discussion here on the show. Brandon's going to go first, and uh, then I'm going to end it with uh, more on those that Goldilocks, the jobs report, some oil news, and so forth. But Brandon, go ahead. So I actually, in the past couple of weeks, um, I have been I bought uh, Pfizer stock, and then I've been adding to it um, incrementally. And uh, you know, I I this is the first time I've ever bought a biopharma uh, stock. This is the first time I've ever bought a prescription drug company. 
The reason for that is, is that there's, they have to spend either A, heavily on uh, research and development, or if they're the size of Pfizer right now, maybe they spend a little less heavier, but still heavy on mergers and acquisitions, buying up companies that have already spent the money on the research and development phase. But either way, with biopharma companies, oftentimes you're still losing shareholder equity because of all of the money that they have to spend on one or two of those things. And then at that point in time, if they don't pass the uh, you know three phases for the drug trials for the FDA, then all of that research and development money, most of the mergers and acquisition money goes to waste. So that that's usually why I don't step foot into this part of the game. Uh, because it, that just makes it a little bit more risky. However, I was looking at um, Pfizer, and I think the last I looked, they were down like 20% or 22% year over year already. Uh, they're one of the most profitable uh, biopharma companies. In fact, the uh, operating margin and net margin are this some of the strongest of the peer group, and um, the gross margin is above the uh, industry medium. So if we look at the operating profit margin, 35.78%. Gross profit margins are really good, 68.15%. The most important one here, the net profit margin is 31.28%. We're still in times of high inflation, so I'm still looking at that net profit margin. I think that's still important when it's over 20%. Um, that means that they've got a good amount of market share uh, for their products. Um, then when you look at the price to earnings ratio here, this gets a little bit cloudy. All right. Because the price to earnings ratio, generally what it does, it looks at the trailing 12 months, the last 12 months, okay? We all know right now that the pharmaceutical companies are going to be getting less revenue from COVID vaccine as time goes on. There, it's Eventually, it's going to uh, bottom out and, and, you know, it'll become kind of like the flu vaccine every year. So there'll be a continuous stream of revenue, but it's just not going to be like it was the past 12 months or the past 24 months. So if you're looking at earnings over the past 12 months, earnings over the past 12 months are inevitably going to be much higher than they will be in the next coming 12 months. So I did two things here. I looked at the price to earnings ratio um, initially, which is close to 8%. And then um, I then took the earnings of now, I'm sorry, the market cap of now, and then divided it by the earnings of 2019. So I think that would actually more represent uh, what the um, possibility of whether or not it's overvalued or overvalued. See, I like what you did there in using the 2000, the pre-pandemic numbers in trying to determine whether or not you think um, its its value is correct with the P-E ratio. So, yeah, because the thing is, is that you'll often have these times where companies have an explosion of earnings for a one-off or reason, you know? And then what winds up happening is that drives the price to earnings ratio down and it makes the company oftentimes what we call a bear trap or a bull trap because people will see that and look at, oh, you know, it's, it's so undervalued. I need to buy it right now. Um, but then it's actually really not because the future earnings are, you know, priced into what it is right now. And if you look at the tra the future earnings, all of a sudden the price to earnings ratio looks a lot uh, more overvalued than what it actually is. Um, let me just look here. Price to sales right now 
Uh, it's two point three three percent. That's uh, that's not bad. That's you know that's not bad at all. Price to book two point one four. All of that's relatively in line with a good valuation. Um, three point seven four percent peg ratio. It's not terrible either. Um, let me try to find where I put these new price to earnings ratios that I have. Uh, hold on. What did you say the PE ratio was? 7.56 right now. That's the trailing. That's really low, man. But the earnings were super high, too. So if you're taking the current market cap and, and dividing it by you know the earnings over the past 12 months, it's going to look a lot better than um, it probably should. Okay, so here's the current the current price to earnings ratio seven point five six percent. But if you take the current market cap and divide it by twenty nineteen earnings, you have a thirteen point three percent ratio, still low. Forward still low, PA, yeah. Forward PE is even better. Usually, if you're looking at a forward uh, price to earnings ratio for a company that's got really really good um, prospects, usually you're looking at a forward PE of twenty or above. Forward price to earnings ratio is eleven percent right now, so not bad. On the valuation side, um, and I just want to kind of get people into my head, you know, and thinking that sort of the way that I'm, I thought about this. Uh, looking at the price to earnings ratio is not the only thing that because there's there's circumstances that will oftentimes either make it look overvalued when it's not, or look undervalued when it's not. Here, I think we have a company that looks undervalued versus the price earnings ratio and the forward price earnings ratio and the 2019 earnings as well before COVID even hit. Right. So I want to, I want to take a, a quick break here. Um, so price to earnings ratio, if you guys don't know what this means, if you're listening and you're maybe a newer, newer investor, say the price of a, a stock was $10 a, a share and uh, then uh, the earnings was a dollar per share. So it was a 10 times price to earnings ratio. Yeah. It's a market cap. As well, yeah. the market capitalization, which is the um, the total price of all shares outstanding. And and so I if what what we're looking at is that that price to the earnings ratio is low. That's generally a sign that maybe you need to look at possibly buying this company. Now, I will say that there have been times in the past that price to earning ratios have been low, but the company still dropped tremendously and the P.E. ratio stayed the same. Which is why I agree with you, Brandon, that you need to use the P.E. ratio in conjunction with other metrics and ways of measuring a, a company's value yeah. and not just the P.E. ratio alone. And the one I bring up, for example, is Micron Technology. We have joked about on the show how it's, you know, it's had a P.E. ratio of $5, uh, five at various different levels. It just keeps going up and down, but the P.E. ratio seems to never change. Yeah. So. Um. If you're if you're looking to hide out in a potential dividend stock, four point two eight percent is the dividend yield for uh, for Pfizer. Uh, this is um, above the pharmaceutical industry average of three point two six percent, above the S and P five hundred index yield of one point nine two percent, and on top of that, most biopharma companies actually do not offer a dividend. So. Um, this is a big thing for Pfizer if you're wanting to buy it right now and have some guaranteed money coming in um, based on the dividends. You know, uh, if you're looking at the gross, uh, the uh, EP earnings per share growth, 11.37% year over year. Um, most recent quarter trailing 12 months is 13.22%. Uh, now, however, here's here's one thing that I have to look at that kind of raised a red flag to me. Revenue growth was down 20 
4.73% in the most recent quarter. So earnings going up or revenue going down tells me that this company is cutting and trimming maybe from jobs. I know that they've cut a lot of R&D right now, and that's sort of what's driving the earnings growth. It's not revenue. That's not sustainable, so we're going to have to see it go one way or the other. Either earnings are going to come back down or revenue is going to have to speed back up, which I think it might actually at the end of 2023, but go ahead. You already covered what the revenue decline was, but it was the COVID vaccinations because Pfizer is a big push had most had a large chunk, if you will, of that share of the COVID vaccinations. And so that is that is where a lot of the revenue decline has been for them um, over the past uh, couple quarters. And it's going to continue to decline for them. And because of that, that's why they're making cuts. Yeah. Now, I it, and the reason why you don't see a lot of pharmaceutical companies, especially the bigger ones, usually do uh, uh, high dividends or, or, or dividends at all is because they try to, like you said at the beginning – reinvest that money by doing mergers and acquisitions of smaller uh, biopharmacal startups that they could go ahead and take in under their umbrella and get those new medications and medicines through through the system that way. Yeah. Um, so that's typically why you don't see that. So that's not always a, a, a good thing to see. Um, it depends on um, if they have enough money still that they're able to make those purchases. It sounds like Pfizer still profitable right now so they're posting earnings it is profitable earnings they are they are running the company well they've got 22 now, billion dollars in cash right now as well not right bad. so i mean yeah it, not not bad shape but i think what they're doing is they're planning for the future there with the job cuts now think uh planning that they're gonna have less uh revenue coming in from the covid vaccination so they need to make the cuts now so that they could better be positioned uh going forward yeah Return on equity right now is 31.66%. So if we're looking That's at nice. a, yeah, efficiency, very efficient company here. Return on assets is 15.33%. Uh, return on investment, 19.19%. Revenue per employee, uh, that's $1,119,904. So that mean all those numbers, I mean, that, it's just indicative of a company that manages its, its uh, finances very well. Now, I, I'm going to be I'm pulling up Pfizer right now as, I, as I'm talking to you here. But like my question is, has the stock moved that much at all? And I mean, how much of a actual return on your investment are you looking for in this? Is this a long term or are you doing a swing trade or, or what's no, going I'm on? Going, I'm going long term. This company, um, unless something changes, I, I'll be holding it for a long time, probably years and years out. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to get 20 percent out of it in the next 12 months, hopefully. All right, so it's it's dropped. I'm, I have the one year chart chart up here, and it was at fifty five bucks a share uh, back in June of last year, and December, and now it's back down to uh, uh, back down to pre uh, pandemic levels here, man. Yeah. So uh, you're you're thinking that it's going to take another rise back up? Then is is yeah. what we're looking at. Probably not as crazy as it did during the COVID boom, but yeah, I, th I think. So I think what, 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 I mean, all right. So they have good fundamentals. They have good numbers. They have a good balance sheet, if you will. But I mean, what, what else is going to drive this? Since we, we were talking about, they're going to have a loss of revenue due to COVID vaccines not being as popular. What's going to drive this well, back up? Is it just good numbers? There, yeah. Well, there's some in the pipeline that we'll talk about here in just a few minutes, but it's also the fact that a lot of biopharma companies, Big pharma companies 
um, are heavily reliant on one or two brands of drugs to make them money. Pfizer actually has eight separate brands that account for more than $1 billion in annual sales. But if you look at those eight separate brands, none of them contribute more than 14% of total revenue. So that speaks to me as a diverse company, as, you know, as far as pharmaceuticals go, they cover a wide range of ailments, not just COVID, but there's prostate cancer. There's all kinds of different things that they cover here. Uh, so if one of those drugs, you know, goes, you know, and doesn't pass the FDA approval or something coming up in the future like that, then it's not really going to hit them that hard because they've got a diverse array of things to fall back on anyways. Um, I, I would, so I would make the argument that, you know, the, the AstraZeneca's, the Merck's, uh, they, they all have the, the same kind of arrangement. Um, the Johnson Johnson's Procter and Gamble's, I mean, they, they have a, a drug flow through their system. I mean, people watch these companies, private jet to see where they take off to and where they land to. You could, you could subscribe, you could subscribe to people who follow their, uh, these companies, private jets when they take off and when they land so that you have a better idea of what kind of, what, uh, what company they're going to buy out. Yeah. So there's people that track them. Um, and it's a subscription service and I, I would, I would make the argument that there's most of them try to be diverse like that. And I, I would actually think that that's, that's typically what you see. And this is why when I was trading day trading biopharmaceuticals years ago, I was day trading the, the smaller ones, the ones that had that one big one in the pipeline. And I would follow the, the news and the clinical studies and, and try to, uh, uh, really speculate on which ones we're going to get approved or bought out. And uh, that's, that's how I was trying to uh, make some money. And that was a long time ago. And it's very speculative, uh, but it may, it gave me a better understanding of how these things all work. And so I, I would say that most of the big giant uh, pharmaceutical companies all work in the same, they try to work in the same way. Yeah. As opposed to Neurotech, which only had one migraine uh, drug, um, but but um, Pfizer bought them out uh, back in October of 2022. They paid $148.50 a share in cash. Uh, that valued Neurotech at $11.68 uh, billion, and that was a 70% premium to the pre-deal closing price. But they had an already approved drug for migraine relief in Nurtec, um, and they had a 17% market share in migraine treatment and 11% migraine prevention in quarter one, 2022. I would imagine, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that's probably grown now that it's a part of the Pfizer family, which has a larger reach than uh, Biohaven and Nurtec did. Hmm. All right. I don't like the price that they pay for stocks because I don't like those. I, I generally don't like those kind of deals because it takes away from shareholder equity. But I do think in these cases, they often make sense in biopharma. Yeah. I mean, they, they provide that instant revenue line uh, addition there. But, you know, it is what it is, man. Yeah. Total revenues in 2022 were at $100.3 billion. That was up $19 billion uh, over from 2021, actually, surprisingly. Uh, Pfizer's new oral COVID medication packs, Lovid, was virtually all of that gain. Um, COVID-19 vaccines, uh, and 
the PFE COVID-19 vaccine commodity, I'm not pronouncing it right, probably, that registered sales of $37.8 billion, um, only up $1 billion from 2022, though. And like I said, we're expecting that to come down, which is why Pfizer is down the way that it is. They guided down for this. So... Um, are they guiding up in the conference calls? Because I haven't listened to their no, conference. No, they got they guided down pretty heavily for this year, for sure. Um, and the research and development spend over the last five year period indicates a weighted average about seventeen percent every year. So um, we're looking at a reduction in R and D, and they're probably going to su- supplement uh, that with a little bit more of M and A activity when the market is good for that with that $22 billion of cash that they have on hand. So the guidance for 2023 were in a range of $67 billion to $71 billion, which is a sizable drop from last year's $100.3 billion in revenue. So like that's that 24, 25% almost uh, actually almost a 30% drop. And that's on the top. That That's on the top number. That's if they, if they hit the top part of their guidance, so pretty big drop in revenue there. Yeah, but they use some of that COVID money, sounds like, to buy the uh, neurotech company. And uh, they that's what I would have liked to have seen is instead of uh, paying out dividends, use use that money to go ahead and buy up these other companies and uh, you know build a big base and get some of these smaller ones to build a pipeline. Yeah. So actually, the stock is down 27% in the past 12 months now that I'm looking at it. I can see it now. Um, one of the things in the pipeline that I'm looking at right now that is very positive for anybody that's got um, any cancer and their genetics, especially prostate cancer, <clears throat> they've got a drug called Talzina and Xtandi. This is a combination between these two drugs, actually, that, that was being studied. Data shows that there's a 37% reduction in risk of disease progression or death in men. Um when using this kind of treatment. Uh, and then it was granted U.S. FDA priority review because uh, the FDA is looking at this, these tests and they're saying, well, this is going really well. We should speed this along. However, even better, if you combine Xtandi with Estellus, you get a significantly reduced risk of metastasis or death by 58%. Um, that's a big, uh, big drop there. Yeah. Now, if you have treatment with Xtandi plus a drug called Liraprolide, um, and Xtandi standalone therapy reduced the risk of, of PSA progression by 93% and 67% respectively, um, compared to placebo plus, uh, the drug Liraprolide, if I'm making any sense. Anyways, this is, this is all great news. Uh, that that's a huge deal. I, if you know anybody, I know I know somebody that passed away of prostate cancer. It cancer sucks, uh, but decreasing the death rate by fifty eight percent. If that's something that they can do, then you know it's not going to make as much money as the COVID nineteen vaccine, but it'll for, it'll for sure make news waves. Yeah, I mean, and that's what you know. We we hope that's what all these drug uh, companies are in in the business for is to help and change lives. At the same time, they have to make money in order to pay for these new drugs and doctors and researchers. So I don't want to go down that 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 rabbit hole there. But um, it sounds like you have a solid buy on this long term holding it. You believe in the future and the pipeline there. I think so. It's my most controversial buy of yet. 
because no I don't think so. I still think Activision was your mo- is still your most controversial buy. That should have passed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, man. What else you got? Robinhood recently reported earnings. Um, and, you know, the, the risk of default here from Robinhood that I was talking about last year, um, it's not as severe as I thought it was, but there's still moderate uh, risk here. They've they've actually got some liens out on them um, against their debt from their creditors right now. Um, I think when I was looking at it before, I don't have these numbers specifically in front of me, their average um their average uh, paying of debts is about 17 days late, so that they don't really have anything reported to credit or anything. But they're they're usually 17 days delinquent. Which uh, I will say this: March 31st, 2023, they reported a revenue of 441 million dollars. That's awesome. Uh, but the net income was negative 511 million dollars. <laughs> so take out all the expenses, doesn't look so good. Uh, revenue and so they're spending twice as much as they're getting pulling in, yeah, yeah. So it, okay. now here's my question is, okay. is this because they're they, they've done free stock trading, a and now they they are also uh doing this four percent yield on uh savings accounts, b and, and they're they're pushing the envelope here of how to make people money with very who, who who don't have a whole lot of money to make money, and do you think they're pushing it too far? With some of these, these, I, I don't, I don't know, what, I don't know what you want to call it, but some of these, these benefits of being having a Robinhood account. Possibly, I mean, there's still, I mean, what, what they came around like what 2012 or something like that. Yeah, they're still kind of in their growth phase and still trying to take market share from Charles Schwab and and others in a fairly competitive environment. Um, so I think you can justify some of that stuff. But I mean, if you looked at like the revenue um, last year over the over the twelve month period, the revenue was only two hundred ninety nine million dollars at the beginning of twenty twenty two. So it did increase, you know, a good amount to four hundred forty one million dollars. However, their uh, net revenue uh, went even further negative because net net income was negative three hundred ninety two million dollars. Last year, and now it's negative $511 million. So expenses just continue to increase. I think the user base of Robinhood has dropped because I think the market has gotten a lot harder over the past year and that a lot of retail investors have given up. Yeah, well, the market has, all right. So I want to I want to make a correction on a couple of statements here. The market has not gotten harder, Brandon. The market has gotten back to normal. And this is where you and I have traded at for years in is in these type of markets uh, before we started doing this podcast be it while we're doing before we're doing the Facebook uh, page that we had there for a while, that group. Um, before we did all that, we, we were trading in this. This is normal for us. What yeah. it was is a lot of people got into the market during 2020 and you could throw a dart at a board and you could probably be correct and it was going to make you money. And. and People, you know, you know, we joked when we first started doing this podcast, we joked that it was easy. Anybody could have guessed right and, and made money. It was just too easy. Um, you're picking gold off the street during that time. But now it's back to normal. We said that this would come. And I think people are realizing this is harder than what they thought it was. And they they don't know how to properly judge companies or value companies and 
and properly judge the macroeconomic events of the day and how it's going to affect things. People chase the dragon, as we call it on this show, a lot. And they chase, when a company gaps up, they they try to follow it, thinking it's going to go to the moon. And there's not all that money behind those things anymore. And so that's that's what I think that is. And yes, Robinhood's user base has gone down, but I would like to know what they're spending their money on. I would like to look at the earnings report. I did not have time um, that I did not know you were going to bring up Robinhood. You caught me off guard with that one, but I would have liked to have looked up their uh, their actual earnings report and see where their money's going. Like, what are you spending this money on that we are doubling what we're spending versus what we're pulling in? I don't see any advertisements, so I don't know to be honest with you. Right? That's yeah. I could dive deeper into it's just. Uh, I think Dave, you started investing or at least getting to learn investments kind of more closer to the dot com crash. Am I right about that? It was it was after the dot com crash. Yes, I had uh, in my early twenties, I had come into a little bit of money, and someone I knew was a stockbroker and said you need to invest it, and I, I went ahead and put some money in and lost it all, and <laughs> I learned learned from my mistakes. But uh, yeah, it was after that. It was before the two thousand eight crisis, but after dot com. Yeah. So, and then the, when the 2008 crisis hit and we kind of, a lot of us poured money into, into the market during 2008, thinking everything was you know going to be great. But then we had another crash in 2010 and, <laughs> and this was, it happened to be one of the toughest markets to invest in, despite the fact that if you bought in 2008, these good companies like Amazon or Apple um, or, or, you know, any of the uh, mega tech companies that you'd be and you know, pretty well off by now. But the fact of the matter is, is that it was so hard to hold, especially I think it was harder for me looking at the 2010 crash because I didn't expect it to happen. And I wasn't, you know, very experienced. But now in my investing life, I look at that as a strength because it's so funny because we were just talking about how for most people, the market right now is hard. I'm doing better than I ever have over the past 12 months with my investments, because this is kind of what I got bred into doing. You know, this is this was where I started was this, um, whereas I think a lot of retail investors started during the COVID crash when there was no place to go but up. And right. Too much rampant speculation. Yeah, yeah. Very, very too much uh, speculation. And I mean. I like to think, Brandon, that you have your experience underneath you, and now you you are a more savvy investor, and you realize a couple things, and you're moving forward with them, and you know you do what you. Do. And I always tell people, like uh, when people come up and say, "Hey, have you thought of you know doing this kind of option, or doing this spread option, or this thing here, or you know buy and sell in, in this market and these penny stocks?" I say, "Look, I do what I do because I'm comfortable with it. I'm good at it. I'm experienced in what I do, and I don't try to shake the boat because <laughs> it's making me money." So I'm not going to go out there and try to reinvent how to trade stocks. I'm going to just do what I do because yeah. it's working uh, and I'm going to continue to do that. And I'm comfortable with that. So I don't do a whole lot of options. Very rarely, a few times a year do I do options, but I, I stick with just buying and selling stocks. And I think a lot of people during 2020 did a lot of options thinking that it was quick, easy money. I can make a lot of money real fast. And, and, you know, they found out the hard way. Yeah, they did. And, and, uh, and, you know, the funny thing is, is when you're doing it, you know, either the way that you do it when you buy and sell and do swing trades or day trades or, or, or whatever, or the way that I'm kind of buying and holding now, all you need is a couple of great winners. That's it. Yeah. 
And, and you can have a diversified portfolio and have some major losers in there too. But if you've got two or three companies that are just really kicking butt, you're fine. And that's kind right. of where I'm at right now. I've I've got you know a handful of about ten different stocks. Uh, most of them are doing really well. I've got two losers right now. RH being one of them, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, uh, I got two losers for me as well. Intel yeah. and Cooler. Meta, General Electric, GE Healthcare. Those are the companies that are really pushing me forward right now on Google. So, yep. so let me transition now. It's, I'm going to do a hard transition. There's no smoothness in this. Um, we're going to transition over into, um, I want to talk a, a few minutes about the most recent jobs report and what that has to do for the uh, the rest of this year and where we see uh, things land in, right? So the jobs report was a very high, high number. One, when I look at this, I'm trying to see, okay, where are all these jobs being created and how is this going to affect everything? So it was professional business services. They led the job creation with a net of 64,000 new hires. The government helped with another 56,000 jobs and healthcare contributed with 52,000 jobs, right? Um. Leisure did finally come in there uh, in in fourth place, and so that was the one I was really looking for. Where's leisure? Is leisure gonna uh, win the way? Uh, and hospitality were they gonna lead the way? And they were not leading the way. It was uh, professional business services. This goes back to the thing I've been saying now for one year, and this goes back to I want to look at the number of total amount of jobs available because I didn't see that in this jobs report, and I saw it in last month's to where the total amount of jobs available dropped by over a million last time. I didn't get a chance to look into this report to see uh, where the total amount of jobs available landed. I would like to see that because I would like to know if it dropped again. If we are just filling in these jobs, but we're not creating any more, we're filling in where we needed to, where we needed to hire. So now there's not this, you know, oh, we don't have enough people. We don't have enough people that we've heard for a number of years. It's finally everywhere's filling up, filling up, filling up. Um, and I wonder what the total amount of jobs is. And I did not see that, but I am going to find it for us so I can talk about it in next week's podcast. But that's one thing I'm looking at to see if the total amount of jobs, Brandon, dropped again, then this goes back to what we've been saying, that this is just people reentering the market. They're finally settling on a job. They may not be happy with it, but they have to take a job right now. And so they're taking the job that they can get. It was, it looks like to me, I looked at it before and what I can remember out of the top five, um, two of them were, well, one was leisure and hospitality. And then a, another significant increase was government related jobs. Yeah. Government came in second. They created uh, 56,000 jobs. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it, it, there's been a lot of job cuts. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, uh, a downturn in companies, right? Um, consumers are spending, but they're using credit cards and they're using things like a firm to go ahead and continue the spending, which I don't think is going to hold up in the second half of the year once if uh, if the current uh, uh, administration allows the uh, student loan payments to resume, people are not going to be able to make the student loan payments and uh, these credit card payments and uh, companies like a firm payments. So, I see a slippery slope going forward. Um, it's good that we're creating jobs, but unemployment did tick higher, surprisingly, even though we are still uh, creating jobs at a, at a nice, hot, and heavy pace here. Um, unemployment ticked a little bit higher to 3.7%, which is 
good for the inflation front. We still don't have inflation down to 2% level, but you want to see unemployment go higher. So inflation come down. Um, that's typically a good sign there. So I think, Brandon, this points more towards a soft landing. And it all depends on consumer credit spending for me is what I'm looking at. And I want to see where the total amount of jobs are. I don't have those two numbers. And if I did, I could have a better idea of whether or not this points for a soft landing. So I'm actually being contrary to what you said last podcast. So I was I was looking more into like sort of the history of inflation again the other night because I'm a nerd. That's what I was doing for fun. And you generally don't really have a inflation catastrophe until it's sustainably above 10% year over year. Um, and then once you hit 15%, you start to flirt a little bit more with um, a monetary catastrophe and um, extreme de devaluation of the U S dollar. Once you get to 20%, you're there and inflation. So we're not anywhere near that. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, if you're starting to talk about recession, they compare it to 2008, which was the first global recession, global recession since the Great Depression. So 2008 recessions don't come along that often. Um, whether it's a soft or a hard landing, it's probably not going to be as bad as 2008 was. Okay, I agree with you there. I, I Yeah, we can agree on that. And I, I think uh, inflation is coming down. And, it, and I, even the Fed believes that inflation is coming down. Then they got a, a good hold. On it, uh, they're probably a little more dovish than than I am on uh, their hold on inflation. But I do believe that they have made some progress. We are nowhere like the UK is right now. The UK is still struggling with extremely high uh, inflation there, and Europe's still higher than us. We we've brought ours down faster than uh, all the other uh, uh, developing uh, developed countries, if you will, with inflation. So I think we have a good job there and the economy is staying strong, but I'm worried about the fact that the economy is staying strong because of credit. It's not staying strong because of cash, just staying strong because of credit. And that's where I've always mentioned my concern is I brought up the Apple uh, card and the troubles they've had there and Goldman Sachs and the losses with the Apple card because of subprime borrowing. I believe we're going to have the same thing. And it's going to be because of companies like Affirm. And it's going to be because once the student loan payments go start going back in and people are being forced to make the student loan payments, that's what's going to trigger a lot of these uh, credit cards and, uh, and other companies to default. I got a couple of things to say about that. So go first ahead. of all, let's tie this back into what I was talking about with Robinhood. Those people that have that uh, those those high, uh, you know low credit ratings and high debt. What investment app do you think they're using? It's Robinhood. It, the Robinhood base will be affected more severely by having to repay student loans or by, you know, a, cre a, a credit crisis, even if it is small, than anybody that uses Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade or um, International Business. What What is that? International Business? I forget the international one. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I, I do. I do. Not my head. Okay. So those, those people that are using those, um, those investment vehicles aren't going to be as affected. So that's another reason why I'm staying away completely from Robinhood. But um, as far as what you're talking about, I think we need to try to find a different way to manage debt here in the United States. Uh, clearly for the country, but also for consumers, because it's crazy to me how the people that are in the most debt are the people that continuously pile up more and more and more debt. 
Um, because what winds up happening is these companies that, you know, maybe become super bullish and go into Goldilocks mode, these credit card companies that that may think that, like, you know, what happened in the past isn't going to happen again in the future, they start going after the people with a low credit rating so that they can charge them higher APRs. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, and the same thing happens on an international scale, which is incredibly interesting to me. The countries that are worse off and that are least able to pay their debt have higher debts because you have the JP Morgans of the world. I'm not targeting them specifically, but these big global banks and even uh, people that belong to the IMF start saying, Oh really? I want to load, loan some money out to Argentina like they did in the, you know, early 1990s, a bunch of Argentina, you know, loans go on to them. And then what happened in, and I think it was 98 or 99. That could be off on my year there. Argentina defaulted because nobody was paying attention to the risks. We really need to do depth differently is what I'm trying to say, because it, it's really a stupid thing that the people that are least able to pay the debts have the most debt and the countries that are least able to pay the debt have the most debt as well. Yeah. And well, I think in, as, as far as America, because I think you're talking about the global country debt is different than what American consumer debt here is, because I believe here in America, a, a, not all of it. I would say a good percentage of uh, that debt you're talking about of people who are uh, least uh, had the worst credit and all that that have a large amount of debt. They're trying to keep up with everybody else on in, on Instagram or Facebook or social media and TV and the what like, and they want to. They're trying so they 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 get in debt in order to have the nice the nice image or things or trips or what have you uh, rather than doing it correctly. Yeah. And I believe that's where a, a percentage of it, I would I would probably, if I had to throw out a guess, and this is strictly off the top of my head, just a guess, if you're listening right now, probably 25, 30% of uh, American debts because of things like that. And uh, and that's, that's a behavioral issue with Americans. And that that's a behavioral issue that probably needs to be adjusted and changed. But as far as what I'm talking about in investing, Investing, I'm looking at you know this is going to hurt the the finances and and the the financials market and sectors later on in the year. Not right now. I believe that you're still going to have a bullish run in the banks right now because J.P. Morgan put out the fire of the First Republic and all that, and that's all gone now. Uh, so I believe you are going to have some positive news in the banks right now for, in the short term. But I believe in the six to nine month realm, somewhere around there, you might see some hard times ahead if the student loan uh, payments resume, which they have to at some point. We can't just, we, <laughs> that's trillions of dollars. I don't know where you're going to come up with. I mean, I, I don't know. I just looked at the debt ceiling, $31.9 uh, trillion for our balance sheet. That's insane. And then I don't know if, if you're going to add double that to pay off all the student loans. And, and I mean, this is just, I don't know where, where you would get the money as a country to to pay that off. I I, I think we do enough reckless uh, spending as a as a country, but uh, I don't want to get political here. I feel that that's going to be a trigger, if you will, later on that will put us into a a slight recession. Yeah, Small for sure, for sure, it could be. Um, and that it's just I don't know. I guess it's just human nature and. I'm hardly ever one for any rules or regulations or anything like that, but I, something has to be done because we don't have the right kind of incentives in place. We don't. And so what, I, what I'm saying is, guys, uh, 
financial sector, goodbye right now, but don't don't hold it for long because it's going to have a downturn. Unless you're a very long-term investor, like 40 years, then then okay, Berkshire Hathaway. Um, but if you're not that, uh, then I would say, you know, this is this is a a more shorter trade, and then don't hold it in the second half of the year. Um, but they, I mean that that's my only say on that. Uh, that's what I'm watching, and I do want to get that that number of total amount of jobs available to see if it dropped again, uh, and see how that affects the market as well, because that's a big number I want to see. It'll be interesting to see if the Federal Reserve raises interest rates again on June 13th, um, which I think it's June 13th and 14th is the meeting. Uh, for in June, and I, I think we're expecting. I think the market is expecting it to not happen. Yeah, they're uh, expecting no, uh, no. They they're not saying that the Fed's going to quit raising rates, but they're expecting it to take a pause on this next meeting and not raise it at all. Um, the only possibility that I've heard out there for a raise was a point uh, twenty five basis point raise if they do at all. But um, everybody, the market is priced in not raising rates. I do think though. I think it's priced in not raising rates right now and maybe a fair value for that condition. But I do think that if the Federal Reserve does pause on rates, then we go into Goldilocks, like real Goldilocks mode. And uh, we, we have a run that nobody that's listening to the show should touch at that point. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I would I would day trade. <laughs> But yeah, I, I I have I have very particular I have a day trade and watch lists so I have very particular ones that I know very well in and out of the company that uh, I know like the back of my hand so yep that's the way to do it all right guys um, we hope you've enjoyed the show Brandon final thought yeah if if it does rally if the Federal Reserve uh, doesn't raise rates in June and decides to hold off just to see what the extra you know uh, side effects of the largest rate increase in probably history uh, is at least since the 1980s, then uh, yeah, I think it's gonna go on a run. But I think right now you can sort of cherry pick what you're buying kind of like what I did with Pfizer. Just look at stocks that you think are undervalued right now and buy them up. Um, but, uh, if, if we go on a hot rally again, it's been six weeks already of the NASDAQ being up. Um, so that's why I didn't buy a tech stock. But, uh, if, if we go on a rally again, don't chase that dragon. Not for a long-term buy at least. There you go. Um, I'm going to leave you guys with this. I I have someone recently who I started working with and and trying to uh, mentor and invest in and, they didn't even have a 401k uh, a year and a half ago. They have a 401k now. Um, and they were asked, uh, they started taking um, just 20 bucks a paycheck and put it into a, uh, out of the, each paycheck and it automatically gets deposited into a Fidelity account. You nice. know? And I was like, yeah, right. Uh, Brandon and I are both nodding ahead, like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening and you're like, 20 bucks, that's nothing, right? Yeah, right. Well, they've been doing it now for a few weeks. So, uh, a few paychecks. I mean, sorry. So they got like, you know, 60, 80 bucks in there now. And and they also came up to, and they said, you know, this isn't a lot of money and, and, and not a lot of thing in here. And I said, all right. I said, three months ago, how much money did you have invested in the market? They said, hardly, hardly anything, nothing. Well, I mean, nothing because she didn't have, she didn't have anything, right? Just 401k. I said, well, what do you have right now? And she looked at me like, 80 bucks. I'm like, okay. 
you're already doing better than you did three months ago. Yeah. I said, you got to, you got to take that first step and build something in order to go ahead and grow it for something else. So think about that in a way of percentages, not, you know, just regular dollar amounts. And then start to understand that over the course of a long period of time, the interest rates start compounding as well. So that initial $20 that you put in eventually becomes $1,000, which eventually becomes $2,000, which eventually becomes $4,000 and so on. You have a lot working in your favor when you have, you know, a long time period in a 401k. And and that was where I went with it. I said, now, 10 years from now, imagine where you're going to be based off the things you're learning now and that you're building an actual uh, investment account on top of your retirement account. Yeah. Because your investment account, you could take, and if maybe you get into real estate, you could take that money and invest in real estate, or you can invest in a business, or you can invest in all kinds of other things. You know, but you you would never have had that investment account if you didn't take that twenty bucks a paycheck and automatically deposit into your uh, brand new Fidelity account and start growing it. And you're losing money if you put it in a savings account these days. So you because you're losing purchasing power with every day that goes by with inflation still elevated. Right, inflation's above four percent, and the highest interest rate return on the savings account is four percent. So it, you are losing money. <laughs> and it's so easy that if you're paycheck to paycheck, but you've got to a little bit of money in the savings account to say, I could go ahead and get, you know, this $5 Starbucks drink and dip into my savings a little bit. But once you've got it tied up into a 401k or into any kind of investment account, really, then it's much harder to take out. So you're really saving more money doing it that way anyways. Right. And so that's what I want to leave people with, you know, is you got to start somewhere, get that ball rolling, start investing in somewhere. Uh, We've given you guys lots of long-term good investments on the show. And take any one of those long-term investments that Brandon and I believe in and are, uh, have long-term belief in and just you know put some money in it mm-hmm. you know, or do your research. Re- re- go on our website. We don't have much on the website. It's a very simple website, but there is an article on there about how to value a company. Read that and use that. Use that to value companies out there and find the ones that are valued right for you. All right. We don't want to drag this on anymore, guys. So as, uh, as always, we hope we've been entertaining, educational, and uplifting because we want everyone to make money. Have a good night. Have a good night.